The Canucks make some changes behind the bench. Plus, round two of the Stanley Cup playoffs continues. It's a long weekend edition of Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Durant, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drance, there's so much happening, uh, not just with the Canucks right now, but obviously around the NHL. We, we had to come in on the long weekend, on the holiday Monday, to break it all down because it was a fascinating fascinating weekend uh, around the NHL uh, and in the Stanley Cup playoffs certainly I do before we get to all that we'll, oh, we'll yeah. talk we'll talk about Connor McDavid and we'll talk about you know the Tampa Bay Lightning on the verge of a sweep of their Florida rivals and all of that don't worry but I do want to get in to some of the Canucks news off the top uh, this is Canucks hour of course and the the news came out over the weekend released by the club itself that they they've made some changes to their coaching staff and of course this comes on the heels of Bruce Boudreaux officially returning for next year as the head coach, but the changes that have been made are that uh, assistant coaches Scott Walker and Kyle Gustafson, plus video coach Daryl Seward, won't return. They will not be part of the club next year, and they also said, here's how things currently stand for the coaching staff next year, which is, of course, Bruce Boudreaux as the head coach, Brad Shaw and Jason King as assistant coaches, and Ian Clark as the goaltending coach. And, you know, I don't think this is earth-shattering news by any stretch, uh, Drancer, because a lot of the key people behind the bench are still going to be there for next year. But it is just interesting, kind of more changes. The 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 Rutherford and Alvin stamp continues to be felt. And I'm also going to be really curious to see uh, what the replacements look like for, for these people behind the bench, too. Yeah, and you'd have to think, I know the release was framed in a way that made people think this was pretty final, but there's no way they're going to operate without an eye in the sky coach. Yeah. I mean, no way. And it is a return to a three-man bench. Uh, I I would assume that they will return to a three-man bench. Uh, Some clubs are trending in the direction of adding an additional person behind the bench. The Canucks had four people on the bench last year. Um, you know, I, I, Boudreaux's always run a three-man bench. I wouldn't be surprised if that, that number was reduced, but you still want an eye in the sky coach, I would think, beyond King and Shaw and Ian Clark uh, to, to sort of function that way in your organization. And I think you'd want someone to crush video. Um, you know, a, a video coach is pretty much standard across the league. I, I can't think of a team that doesn't employ, um, you know, a standard video coach. Shout out Roger Nielsen. <laughs> it wouldn't have happened 30 <laughs> years ago, but now... That is, you know, uh, an everyday thing. Absolutely uh, a, ne- a necessary part of any staff. So you would think that the Canucks will add a couple bodies. The dynamics here, you know, I don't think we're hugely surprised. Uh, Dan Murphy, of course, reporting that Scott Walker made a family decision yeah. to go back. Um, you know, it would have been a stunner, like an absolute jaw dropper if, if Scott Walker had been relieved of his duties just considering the weight that he has in the organization. I mean, this is a person who's, you know, had multiple tours of duty with the club, uh, extremely well thought of by, you know, Jim Rutherford, who he played for, uh, by certainly uh, Ryan Johnson. Those two have been colleagues going back forever. Uh, Even Canucks director of amateur scouting, Todd Harvey, right, was on Scott Walker's staff when they were coaches with the Guelph Storm. Um, not to mention the fact that Walker was Boudreaux's handpicked guy, right? His his one assistant who came in with him after the Canucks relieved Travis Green and Nolan Baumgartner of their duties in early December 2021. So 
Walker had a tough go. I mean, we all know uh, about the COVID infection. We know that, you know, he got hit by a puck, uh, battled some uh, tough days there, I think, Mm -hmm. while he was uh, waiting to return to the bench, ultimately worked his way back. Um, You know, Walker's got his Guelph Storm team. His his kids are old, but not quite out of the house. His son plays for the Guelph Storm. Um, it was a it was a really rough few months there for reasons outside of the job, right? And and so not a huge shocker to see him go back. But I, I'm curious to see if he remains affiliated in some way with the organization, just because that's how deep the relationships are, and that's how highly thought of Walker is, right? I mean, this is a guy who across multiple iterations of this of this team's sort of management structure has been seen as as sharp a hockey guy as you'll find and and that's not for no reason right they're not wrong about it yeah uh, scott walker's extremely bright uh, has had an extremely successful post-playing career obviously was a heart and soul guy in his playing days too um, so that's sort of the big the big departure and, and seems to be uh, on Walker's terms, and I'm curious to see if that's the last we'll hear of Walker and his involvement with the club or if there might be, you know, something else that he could do out in Ontario uh, while serving the team, you know, perhaps in a scouting or consulting capacity. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if there's another page here, like if there's another part to this story that we'll see play out in the months ahead as the organization continues to go through a multitude of changes behind the scenes in and, terms of the backroom staff. Yeah, and it might not, it, it's the Walker thing strikes me as, you know, maybe the relationship doesn't continue right away, but down the road, who knows, right? It, it definitely feels like that door is still open because, as you said, he's leaving on his own terms right now. There's all of the many, many ties between Scott Walker and the organization. So it, it certainly would not be a shocker at all to see some relationship, him serve the club again in some capacity down the road. And, you know, the fact you, you mentioned that uh, the way the statement was written caused maybe a little bit of curiosity okay are they going to try to replace these people or is this it this is what they're running with and i I think when you know that you can't you can't run with you can't run with four like you can't run without a video code yeah exactly there's you could probably have ian clark serve as an eye in the sky in addition to running a goaltending department in addition to being your goalie coach but um you know it doesn't seem likely to me that feels that feels like a lot there's another it feels like a lot. It feels like it feels like too much to put on, you know, a coach whose responsibilities within the organization also over, you know, include overseeing goaltending development outside the NHL level and amateur scouting and pro scouting outside the NHL level, right? I mean, the, as an example, like when the club traded for Spencer Martin, and we all know that went well, you know, it, not that not that Clark was like suggesting guys, but there was like a list of six or seven guys presented like hey these are guys we can get to be a veteran guy at the ahl level like who should we target you know clark's involved in that process clark's the guy who looks over the list and says hey this is the guy this is the guy i like similarly in the amateur draft right i mean he's deeply involved in shaping the club's approach to goaltending scouting uh we've seen that with archer silovs last year or at the last draft in 2021 um, you know, they were hoping that a goaltender would fall. Ultimately, it was Pittsburgh who took him, sort of coincidentally. So presumably, him and Patrick Alvin uh, have something of a <laughs> of a of a shared ethos, perhaps, when it comes to goaltending evaluations. But you know, he's deeply involved in that process too, throwing additional responsibilities beyond just watching the goaltender. Um, you know, 
uh, that seems like a lot. It seems like ideally you'd have an, another body, someone someone a little bit more tactically focused as opposed to just focused on on goaltenders uh, for that role. Uh, the, the club hasn't not had an eye in the sky coach, um, you know, as far as I as far as I can remember, dating back to you know, I, I probably can't think of the last time that existed. Certainly not since the Benning era began. And that's and that's going with trends across the league. And I know, you know, whenever you talk about staffing and kind of non-salary cap spending, I, I think a lot of Canucks fans tend to get worried. Oh, is this, you know, is this the ownership trying to save money? Is there something like that going on here? But I think, first of all, the context that this was Scott Walker's decision is really important, right? Because this was not management looking at this and saying, you know what, we want to run lean. Uh, we don't need a, another body here. So thanks. And, you know, thanks for your service. And, and here you go. This was Scott Walker's decision, right? So I think that is really important context. And I also just think, you look at how the front office has been built out, right, and the many, many additions that have been made and how much more robust and larger it is now than it was, uh, you know, just before Jim Benning was let go as general manager. It would be pretty surprising then to turn around and, you know, not necessarily be one of the top spenders on your coaching staff, but to kind of cut corners and pinch pennies on your coaching staff to me would be pretty surprising. So, again, you put kind of those two factors together, and I don't think that's what's going on here. Just from my perspective uh, as an outsider looking at the situation, I would expect them to try to add, as you say, an eye in the sky, somebody who can help, who can take those duties you know, away from potentially Ian Clark. And I do think it's interesting just looking at the makeup of the coaching staff now, obviously with Boudreaux, uh, Bradshaw, and Jason King. And those are not you know, Boudreaux's guys. Those also aren't. Uh, Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin's guys. And I'm really curious, you know, you can kind of go through, okay, Bradshaw handles the defense and he took over the penalty kill uh, after Scott Walker was unavailable and had really, really good results there. And Jason King runs the power play and that really heated up later in the season. So you can kind of allocate who does what to a certain degree on the bench. If you're looking to kind of round out this coaching staff with one more body what is it like what's the area that kind of needs to be shored up a little bit is it just as you said you know somebody with a really smart tactical x's and o's kind of mind that can be up in the box and see what's going on or is there something else that uh, that teams and, and the Canucks specifically are looking to kind of fill out the coaching staff here well you know it's an interesting question Jamie because during Rutherford's Penguins tenure as an example the club often had a role that was relatively unique in league-wide terms. Um, there was a position that pretty regularly functioned within the Penguins organization in those years, and the sort of title was development coach. And over the years, development coaches for the Penguins included usually ex-players, like relatively recent ex-players, guys who were sort of being groomed to potentially eventually join the bench. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about your Sergei Gonchars, who ultimately became an assistant coach for the Penguins. Uh, you're talking about Mark Recchi, who, uh, you know, is currently an assistant coach with the New Jersey Devils, um, you know, but also uh, served um, in that capacity for the Penguins down the line, right? Like, like in... 2017 18 um on so there's sort of tended to be a, a a role within that that organization anywhere where you had smart ex-players with ambitions of of coaching within the game who would take on development coaching roles for the club and and i'm curious to see if that might be 
one area we see additional bodies brought in uh, in, in a similar sort of form for the Canucks, particularly because, you know, this would be sort of in addition to presumably an eye in the sky coach, but but perhaps it's the same type of role. Maybe maybe the club double dips and has a, a coach who does the same sort of thing. Uh, that would be sort of a relatively uncommon or relatively common, excuse me, uh, formulation that we see around the league. And that would be in keeping with Rutherford's habit of really valuing the input and involvement of smart hockey people across the board. So that would be sort of what I'd watch for. In in terms of the dynamics, I just want to get back to your point on budget. You know, the the thing to remember here is a Bradshaw is a premium assistant yeah. coach, right? This is highly experienced guy. He's worked with Hitchcock. He's worked with Tortorella. Twenty year career. Um, so you know that's not a that's not a entry level assistant coach. It's not as if it's not like when the Canucks built their staff out in 2021 and you could sort of see the seams. Um, this, this feels markedly different. Uh, the other thing, the other thing that I'd note is, you know, while I don't, I don't sort of see that as being the front line or the headline item dictating things. I, I do sort of wonder how much that impacted the club's decision not to extend Bruce Boudreaux, right? Particularly considering that they're on the hook for Travis Green's second year, um, you know, they had an extension for a coach and then fired him 25 games into that new deal. So, you know, you could understand if the organization was a little bit gun shy in in terms of taking that path again. Um, and, you know, that would be informed by budget realities. So I'm not saying it's entirely outside the the scope of a fair line of inquiry. It just doesn't feel to me like the shaping influence here. Uh, as for the other dynamics, I, I want to mention Kyle Gustafson. Mm-hmm. You know, Kyle Gustafson was... Certainly a, a coach who was hired by Travis Green, handpicked, a uh, very close relationship there. Uh, Patrick Johnston linked him to the WHL coaching vac- vacancy in Spokane. I, I suppose we'll see by all, uh, you know, by all um, accounts, uh, a very bright hockey mind. Um, looks like he'll probably land and, and land somewhere relatively high profile pretty quickly here. Um, you know, King, though, Jason King is another Travis Green guy, was on his staff in Utica. Right, obviously has a legacy with the organization from his playing yeah. days, a relationship with the Twins. He's done a lot of different things at the American League level, right? Like he had an administrative role with the St. John's Ice Caps back when uh, the the Winnipeg Jets AHL affiliate played in Newfoundland, um, his home province, and obviously has been an assistant. Uh, I thought his first year as an NHL power play coach went pretty well, all things considered. There was a sort of a lull in the middle there, but for the most part, even when the club's power play results weren't good at the start of the year, the club was generating like crazy. They just weren't able to convert, and then they started converting everything and and sort of end up kind of where they deserved to be, which was top 10 in the league by power play conversion rate. I'd imagine that that's something that they could replace. Looked to me like the job was well done. Um, but you know, interesting to see that the, the organization was open-minded, I suppose, to keeping certainly like a hand-picked coach from green staff, right? That that's a guy with close ties to green. So the fact that he's being given another shot being extended, um, or not extended, but certainly being kept around, I think is notable, you know, Shaw wasn't as much a green hire. Right. That was more a manager hire. Uh, and, and certainly Shaw seemed to be far more empowered under Boudreaux than he had been under Green over the course of last season. You could see him being more involved in terms of 
uh, even running drills at practice, drawing stuff up on the whiteboard. Like it was clear that his role expanded significantly after after the coaching change. Um, but but you know one thing one thing that's interesting there is I think Shaw's details um, in terms of his uh, the attention that he pays to analytics. Um, you know, I, I do think there's some di- a, a bit of a divergent skill set from Boudreaux there, and that's an interesting thing too because you wonder what it says about the organization's view of their needs in terms of what the staff composition should look like, and also perhaps speaks to Boudreaux's open-mindedness or understanding that that sort of you know line of sight is something the staff needs and that he needs, in fact, from an assistant as well. So. Uh, a very interesting series of decisions here, but but I do think we'll have to sort of wait to give the global, uh, you know, 30,000 foot bird's eye view of this until uh, we see exactly how else Vancouver fleshes out their coaching staff for the 2022-23 campaign. Yeah, and just before we move on here and get to some of the playoff stuff, you know, your point about the practice in Pittsburgh under Jim Rutherford of hiring that, you know, as you kind of said, ambitious, recent former ex-player to see if they could grow into uh, a more typical assistant coaching role in the NHL, that really fits, I think, as well with the MO that Rutherford has used to build the front office, right? Just in in terms of the the, the stress placed on... I don't want to say mentorship per se, but giving people chances to grow in new roles, right? I mean, even Patrick Alvin, first time general manager, obviously, you know, Emily Castingay joining a front office for the first time, Cami Granato going from a scout to an assistant general manager. I think that has been a pretty clear, and, and, and Rutherford has talked about this as well, how much he enjoys that kind of mentorship uh, process. So I think that theme of taking smart hockey people and giving them a chance to prove themselves at new roles with new responsibilities, I wouldn't shock me at all if we see that continued at the coaching level as well with a hire or two before the start of next season. Okay, I do want to get to everything that happened in the Stanley Cup playoffs over the weekend. And the story in hockey right now in the NHL from an on-ice perspective is what Connor McDavid is doing for the Edmonton Oilers to the Calgary Flames. It is absolutely, absolutely phenomenal right now. We've all heard the stats, you know, 23 points in his first 10 games. And honestly, in a way, as, as nuts as it is to say this, I almost feel like that undersells the level he's at a little bit right now. Like that game yesterday, Drancer, it felt like every time he had the puck, it was going to be a grade-A scoring chance. It felt like he could have had four, five, six points in that game with how consistently dangerous he was. And look, as a result, Edmonton is up 2-1 in that series. Long way to go, obviously, for them in that series, let alone on a on a playoff run. But seeing this version of Connor McDavid, I mean, it, it's first of all, you just have to kind of watch in awe and appreciate it, right? Because I, I can't remember the last time we've seen a player do this at an individual level and sustain this kind of individual performance like he is. But it's also really fascinating from a Canucks perspective because, yeah, this guy's in your division, and he's under contract for a long time with this team. And, uh, you know, you you can't just throw your hands up and say, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? But on the other hand, man, that is a big, big obstacle in the way of anyone in the Pacific Division trying to put together a winner, knowing that you're going to have to, in all likelihood, go through this guy who's capable of playing like this when you get to the playoffs. It, it, this is a really amazing stretch that McDavid's on. Now, t- take this as a, as, a, as a marker of just how dominant he's been. So three games so far in this series, right? And he's been on the ice for 10 of Edmonton's 12 12- 
five on five goals. That's amazing. <laughs> and he's only been on the ice for twelve, or sorry, for four of Calgary's ten. Yeah. So remove McDavid, and Calgary has outscored the Oilers six to two. But in McDavid's minutes, it's ten to four, and so overall, it's twelve to ten. Right? I mean, this is a absolute bludgeoning that McDavid is uh, putting on the Calgary Flames. And yet, you know, I know there's a rush to declare this series over. And and look, the Edmonton Oilers absolutely throttled Calgary in Game 3. But game-to-game momentum tends not to exist in the playoffs, right? Like, we we see this all the time. A team gets blown out and comes back and crushes their opponent the next game. Um, Or even, you know, things like we've seen... If you think about Washington, Florida, right? Washington blows them out, what was it, 6-1 or 6-2? Yeah. And then takes a 3-0 lead, and then from there on, the, the Florida Panthers storm back and basically win three games. Look at... Come back uh, across game 5-6 and, and, or 4-5-6. Colorado-St. Louis. Now, I know it wasn't a blowout in, in game one for Colorado, but it was a dominant, dominant performance. And then St. Louis, yes. you know, came back with a vengeance in game two in that series. And then, and then Colorado comes... You know, game-to-game momentum, beware overreacting to one outcome. Right? This isn't the NFL. We don't have a week to stew on every result. <laughs> you know, and, and every result tells us about one third as much about a, a, an NHL team or about a playoff series as one NFL win does. Right? I mean, that's just how, that's the nature of this game. So this one's far from over. The Calgary Flames have got 860 goaltending from Markstrom and I guess a little stint from Dan Vladar. Markstrom doesn't quite look right, like he looks tired. Um, you know, he's playing in his 74th game when they when they play in game five or game four, excuse mm-hmm. me, tomorrow. So I, I, I do have some concerns about Markstrom's freshness, ab- about where he's at. And we'll talk about this a little bit in the second half uh, or the second segment. But what McDavid is doing is is thrilling, is thrilling. And I love to see, I just love to see a guy level up and show that it can all translate in the playoffs. We, we get so bogged down in narratives about whether a guy can do it or a guy can't do it in the playoffs. And, you know, well, are they a playoff-type great player? And it's like, look, the same players that are the best in the regular season are the best in the playoffs. You know, it's just true. Like, it's just true. And what happens sometimes is a team loses in the first round or the second round or whatever before that player gets enough sort of reps to heat up, right? Gets enough... Uh, opportunity, en- enough of a sample size for their quality to show through. And in McDavid's case, he's he's sort of finally there again, right? This is only the second time. Is this the second time he's I been believe in the so. playoffs? So, well, the second oh, time he's been in, in the second round, certainly. Yeah, it's the second time he's been in the playoffs over a full 82-game season. Right, right? okay. They made, the play, yep. they made the play-in. They made the play-in and lost in the three-game series or the five-game series to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then they made it last year in the All-Canadian Division, right? Swept... And got swept by the Winnipeg Jets. That's right. So this is sort of the first time that we've seen, or the second time we've seen him make the playoffs in an 82-game season, and he's come in absolutely on fuego, throwing fireballs unlike anyone else can, 23 points in 10 games, and and is completely dominating the Calgary Flames. And I just love to see, I love to see that dynamic. And, And we'll talk a little bit about Tampa Bay, because I think the Tampa Bay example is a really cogent one, where, you know, Kucherov was not great in that series against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Mm-hmm. But he's crushed the Florida Panthers. Similarly, Andre Vasilevsky did not outduel Jack Campbell in the first round of the playoffs, and now 
is like the main reason why the Tampa Bay Lightning are poised to sweep one of the most dynamic offensive teams we've seen in the last decade in this sport. Um, in, in both cases, Kucherov and Vasilevsky are great, like Hall of Fame bound players. But, you know, over seven games, sometimes even the best players in this league aren't the best, aren't at their best or get beat a bunch if they're goaltenders, or you know don't have their best five-on-five fastball going, or they're just getting robbed, or the bounces just aren't going their way. And when you get to the point where you get to play that next round, sometimes sometimes you get sort of the line, I guess what I'm trying to say, between playoff goat and playoff hero is so fine, so infinitesimal. And in McDavid's case, it's just great to see him stunting <laughs> on 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 a stage this big, uh, show, reminding everyone just how much better he is than just about every other hockey playing human on this planet. Well, it's, it, you love to see. It. Yeah, the way I look at it, and you know, your point about Kucherov and Vasilevsky, and we'll talk more about the Tampa series. But if you give, you know, you give Hall of Fame talent enough opportunities, and they're going to do Hall of Fame type things at some point, right? And yeah, neither of those guys were at their best in the Toronto series. Now we're seeing why they are, you know, best players on a Stanley Cup winning team, Hall of Fame guys. Uh, we're seeing the same thing with Connor McDavid. Not that he's been the best player in a Stanley Cup team, but we're seeing why, like, what his talent can do when it is fully operational, when he's playing at the peak of his abilities. The other thing I'll just say quickly before we take a break, you know, to the idea that this series is going to be over quickly now. I will say, with the Edmonton Oilers, you know, the highs are high and the lows are low, right? And last night was an absolute high an incredible performance from them an incredible performance from that top line obviously Vander Kane with the hat trick Mike Smith played well all of it right but look like let's not have too short memories with this team we've also seen them go through some really really tough stretches even with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl in the lineup so I wouldn't be so quick to write this one off I I would still have it go in six or seven games here Uh, and I hope it does because it has been fantastic fantastic entertainment so far and uh, really I mean who wouldn't want more games to watch Connor McDavid doing what he is doing right now okay we're going to take a quick break here I will talk a little bit more about the Battle of Alberta from a Calgary perspective and of course lots of connections between those Calgary Flames and the Vancouver Canucks we'll get into that a little bit plus looking at some of the other series as a reminder don't forget subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple Spotify or Google wherever you get your podcast and if you enjoy the show please do leave us a five-star rating and review lots more coming up on the other side it's the home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Happy long weekend. Thanks for tuning in and making us a part of your long weekend. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance. And... Drancer, we got into uh, the Connor McDavid thing. I don't even know what to call it. Just what what uh, the phenomenon that is Connor McDavid, yeah, uh, and, supernova. And, yeah, and in particular in this series in the Battle of Alberta with Calgary, what he's doing is just phenomenal. But I did want to talk about that series a little bit from the Calgary Flames perspective, or I guess more accurately, maybe the kind of the intersection of the Canucks and Calgary Flames perspective on this series because. Two flames who are in very different ways, you know, major talking points in this series are 
Jacob Markstrom for the obvious reason that, you know, as you said, his save percentage is way, way below 900, not where you would expect to see uh, a goalie of Jacob Markstrom's caliber performing. And even though he hasn't played in the series, a guy that a lot of people are talking about is former Canucks defenseman Chris Tanev. And it's really fascinating in light of what's happening right now to kind of revisit that I guess infamous is probably the best word, those fateful decisions uh, to allow those two stalwart Canucks to sign free agent uh, contracts with the Calgary Flames after the bubble season for the Canucks. Yeah, and you know, I've been thinking about this a fair bit because when the Tanev deal and the Markstrom deal went down locally, I think the reaction was that folks understood for the most part. You know, I I didn't feel like that weekend, as you recall, it was Thanksgiving weekend. There wasn't a ton of, you know, on Friday anyway, when those deals went down, the the very first day of free agency, I think it was October 9th or whatever, um, you know, Tanev went and people kind of understood at that term and that value, considering Tanev's age and injury history, you, you kind of understood why the Canucks saw that as a risky deal. Uh, similarly with Markstrom, uh, you know, fans thought that was long and they thought it was expensive and they saw the NMC and they, they thought about their regard for Thatcher Demko and there was a sense of understanding. Now the tone changed as the weekend continued because the Canucks didn't make the Nate Schmidt trade until Monday. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the interim, they had Stetcher walk on a, on a value contract to Detroit and then to Foley walk on a value contract to Montreal. And all of a sudden the, the conversation changed a bit. Now, you know, Tanev has performed to the 99th percentile of what could have reasonably been expected after he left Vancouver. And you love to see it because Tanev's, uh, you know, one of, one of the all-time great soldiers that's ever played for this organization and, and, and a great person to boot. But, you know, the risk that the club took on in sort of, or, or would have taken on in, in signing Tanev to that type of deal, I still think... In an ideal world, if you'd had the cap flexibility, like the problem with the Tanev deal is that's the guy you sign for leadership, not all the guys that the club right. had committed money to for leadership that prevented them from being able to feasibly do that deal. That was sort of my my issue with losing Tanev at the time. But I thought that the risk, considering his age, considering the fact that, you know, I think Quinn Hughes can make a top four defenseman out of just about anybody. And, and we've kind of seen that play out with Shen and Hamannick, although not quite perhaps to the extent that uh, he, the Tanev-Hughes pairing was perfectly calibrated in that 2019-20 season. Um, you know, I thought that there was significant risk there. For me, you know, and I, I bring up Willie Mitchell as sort of the the side note of this. Both, both went to Sutter teams, <laughs> Daryl Sutter teams, and ended up playing you know, some of the best hockey of their careers in into their late to mid or early to mid thirties and were healthy after years with the Canucks in which they had not been right. But those are the mistakes that I think you have to be willing to make, you know, a, a guy finding a new level of form at 32 and being healthier than he's been throughout his late twenties in his early thirties. Like those are the mistakes that you have to live with. Those are the mistakes that you can live with because they're based on sound process. They're based on, you know, a probabilistic assessment of risk. And, you know, in Tanev's case, I, I mean, I hope he gets back into the series desperately. Oh, yeah. Because I'd love to see him get a chance to turn the tide. And his defensive smarts are exactly what the Calgary Flames need right now. But but from a Vancouver perspective, you know, I, I do sort of wonder, as much as that, you know, allowing Tanev to walk has had 
a deleterious impact on this club's overall defensive quality and and perhaps too the leadership um, that they've received on a day to day basis in that locker room. I also think that this is sort of the the proof, I guess, the the proof of concept behind why the Canucks approach that deal with such trepidation until far too late in the process, at which point it didn't matter. And, and Tanev already felt like he'd been at the back of the bus, disrespected and, and walked to Calgary. Uh, similarly with Markstrom, you know, one thing that definitely shaped the club's approach to those negotiations, um, you know, and, and I think the Markstrom deal remains one where, you know, I don't see that as a bullet dodge for the Canucks. I mean, we're talking about a Vezina nominee goaltender this year, yeah. right? And, I mean, I also do think that after the 2019-20 season and considering the logic of the JT Miller trade, like the Canucks were sort of in their window the last two years, or at least the first part of their Hughes-Pedersen window and kind of missed the boat because of, you know, what they did to the roster after the bubble. Uh, Losing Markstrom for me is part of that. Like if you're in your window, and, and I always just sort of have this view that you're always better off trading the younger goaltender because goaltenders are effectively interchangeable for me. That's just how I view it. I know that if you don't have one, it doesn't feel that way, <laughs> right? But but when you have two really good goaltenders, Demko on the one hand and, and a Vezina nominee this year in Markstrom, you know, my, my view of it is just like you're always better off to trade the guy that has more value, right? Especially with where you're at uh, and especially because of what Demko might have returned after the bubble. Now, I, I think that's a very unpopular opinion with fans. Fair enough. Um, certainly, certainly Demko's been, an, I mean, Demko's a star player and, and seen as the, this franchise, franchise player at this point. So uh, I'm not going to sort of second guess or dwell on this more than I have beyond saying that part of what guided the club's approach on Markstrom was down the stretch in 2019-20, he wasn't available. He, he was injured. There was the knee issue that sort of prevented him from, from playing in those games. Um, and then in the bubble, the same thing happened. And, and once again, Markstrom wasn't available when the club was fighting for their playoff lives against Vegas. Demko comes in, does what he does. The rest is history. The club allows Markstrom to walk. Um, you know, never confirmed by either side, but uh, I don't believe that the club ever made Markstrom an offer on a, de- on a contract that went longer than four years. Right. So, I mean, they were not even in the same ballpark as the Alberta teams that were clim- clamoring to, to get a to get a look at at the uh, Vezina nominee Calgary Flames starter. So in that approach, too, they were looking at a player and thinking, will he be able to hold up when we need him? And right now it kind of looks like on both fronts, you're seeing once again, the proof of concept now. We, you know, I think that the club's been pilloried, certainly on the TANF front, for, for having made mistakes in judgment there. And I do think there were mistakes in judgment made following the 2020 uh, campaign, without question. Uh, those, those mistakes are legion. Um, certainly losing every single UFA, I think, created a really tough, toxic environment around the team that sort of lingered through multiple seasons and ultimately contributed, in my view, to bringing about the end of the Benning regime. But you know, I do think in, in these two cases, you're sort of seeing some of what at least was being viewed with trepidation on the Canucks side during that fateful weekend in October of 2020. And, and you're sort of seeing it come to bear at the worst possible time after these guys have been such key factors in powering the Flames' rise as, you know, one of the elite teams in the West. 
And the Tanov one in particular is really fascinating to me because, as you said, that happened, I believe it was Friday. It happened Friday night. And I was actually on air hosting a show here on Sportsnet 650 when the news broke. And my immediate reaction was, this is the right call, right? Don't sign Chris Tanev to that contract for all the reasons you're laying out, right? His age, uh, the injury history, the all of that. Don't sign that contract. And as you said, you know, the reaction I remember very clearly getting in real time from our listeners and from Canucks fans, you know, both on the phones and in the text message inbox was, you know, there was some confusion, but there wasn't a lot of anger. And in fact, there were a lot of people saying, this is the kind of move we've been waiting for this front office to do, right? Like, stop spending money on guys on the wrong side of 30. (laughs) Stop committing term and dollars to those types of players. You know, maybe this is actually a really good sign. And I think, again, that was pretty much my reaction at the time as well. And I think, It's interesting because there's so many different layers to it, because in a vacuum, you just look purely at age, injury history, on ice, the Canucks salary cap sheet in that moment, and I think 100% it is the right call. And then the fact that, as you said, he he exceeds all reasonable expectations for staying healthy and performance in Calgary, man, that's a bad break, but it doesn't mean you had the wrong process going into the decision. But... (laughs) It's a humbling sport. Yeah, but you also, (laughs) if you kind of step back a little bit and look at it in the context of, well, the big reason people didn't want to see them commit money to Chris Tanev was because they already had a lot of inefficient contracts on the book, and you couldn't afford to be wrong about another one, right? But if you didn't have the Antoine Roussels and the Jay Beagles and the Louis Erickson's, not to mention Tyler Myers, who you had just signed the previous off season, right? If you yeah. didn't have those guys already on the books, well, maybe then you can take a little bit of a risk on a guy who is that classic, you know, leader, culture carrier, whatever you want to call it, a warrior for the organization. So you step back to that layer, and yeah, if you're just looking at the actual moment as it was presented to you on that Friday in October, probably the correct decision was made, but you were put in that position by some kind of faulty decision making going into that. And then the correct. other thing yeah. is. The leadership aspect, which I think I probably underrated, but not just the leadership aspect, but as you said, the fact that Tanev felt disrespected out the door and that that was a theme that developed there, that was a big blow as well. So again, I think just from a purely kind of analytical salary cap picture, it was the right move, but there was a, there was so much else, other context going into it that it, it still kind of stings in retrospect, even though, again, I, I, I probably still do that move because of all of the risks that were present at the time. Yeah, I, again, there's 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 mistakes you can live with and there's mistakes you can't. And for me, Tanev and Markstrom were mistakes you can live with, particularly because in Markstrom in Markstrom's case, you were well positioned to handle his departure with Demko, um, you know, waiting in the wings. And with Tanev's case, because of his age, because of his injury history, um, you know, it, it's a mistake you can live with in a vacuum. But you're right that you know you would have rather gambled on Tanev on that type of contract than some of the bets that the club had placed in the summer of 2019 or sorry uh, 2018, and then uh, you know <laughs> compounding issues with um, just a, a wash of overvaluing um, you know bottom six forwards. Mm-hmm. That I mean that was that was sort of the death knell, and and really more than anything shaped some of what limited the club during the um, flat cap years. Uh, that we've you know endured over the last couple so you know for sure but 
again, those are the mistakes you can live with. It's the Toffoli mistake that you can't, right? Mm -hmm. The deal that everyone knows the day it's signed is a value proposition for the team that signed the deal. That team then is able to, A, milk a great playoff run out of Toffoli, right? <laughs> and a massive goal-scoring season. Absolutely crush and, you with Toffoli every time yeah. you play that and, year, yeah. And, and then the contract is still so desirable a year on that you know, you're able to net a first-round pick when you significantly alter your club's direction plus an additional prospect. I mean, that's, that's the, those are the mistakes you can't. That's the mistake yep. you can't live with. So anyway, we, we shouldn't spend too much time relitigating the no. summer of 2020. I think we all know it was a disaster for this club. Uh, but you know, I do think it's interesting to see how you know, some of the club's judgment calls at the time uh, which, you know, good and bad process commingling into a variety of outcomes that, you know, set the club back significantly uh, in a global perspective, you know, all of a sudden we're seeing at least part of that judgment sort of come to bear for the Flames and just at the worst possible time. Now, all that said, Markstrom is too good, I think to continue to get out-dueled to this extent by Mike Smith. No. I think we're going to see his game stabilized. I, I he's would too, be, He's yeah. too proud a competitor for, for this to be how this ends, how this season ends. And yet, you know, I do think there's another big question that this poses, which is, you know, we're now at the point where look at the goalies that played as much or more than Markstrom did this year, and you'll see UC Soros injured at the end of the year. Thatcher Demko injured at the end of the year. Jacob Markstrom, shell of himself in the second round of the playoffs. And Connor Hellebuck, almost, you know, uh, 10%, or not 10%, but point oh nine below his career save percentage mark uh, over the course of the season. Um, you know, I do think we're at, we've reached a point, or we should be reaching a point, where, you know, even the 60-game mark is viewed as being too much. Right, like I really think you're at a point where you need your backup to play 25. As if you have any ambitions of going further than that, you need a backup that can play 25, and that sort of poses some really big questions for the Canucks, who are rolling the dice in a major way on Spencer Martin for next season, who's performed exceptionally well since joining the club, but you know who's never even been an everyday NHL backup and i think if you're going to use demko in an optimal way next season needs to be counted on to start 20 to 25 and ideally 25 plus for this club next next year uh, all right let's talk about the tampa bay lightning because they are on the verge of not just advancing to the conference finals but sweeping the the big bad florida panthers in the what was it the the battle of alligator alley or the yeah the yeah, battle the, of alligator alley there Let's you go, go that's that. that's what we were going with for uh, for that one and i mean first and foremost i want to say that uh, i i've learned my lesson drancer because i picked tampa in the first round against the leafs was rewarded for it and i very foolishly picked the florida panthers in a long series <laughs> whereas i had two. the opposite yeah i had the opposite <laughs> issue my my takes age better <laughs> yes, there you go. the Leafs were closer there you go uh, but but yeah well so the thing that I'm sort of wrestling with myself is I had this huge take on the Tampa Bay Lightning having sabotaged their team's speed right and that you know I thought that the Tampa Bay Lightning wouldn't have the speed to keep up with especially in their bottom six forward group the greater depth and talent that Toronto and the Florida Panthers were going to attack with and in both cases, it kind of hasn't mattered because of their edge on special teams, mm -hmm. and certainly against the Panthers, uh, their edge in net. Now, all of this said, I do think what we're seeing from Tampa Bay is materially different, even though the outcome is the same, dominating in the playoffs, 
than what we saw the last two years. Last year, in particular, it felt to me like the Panthers would adopt, or sorry, the, the Lightning would adopt the style of play that their opponent brought and just do it better, right? <laughs> so in the, that first... In that first round series against the Panthers last year, the Panthers, you know, were, were attacking constantly, yeah. playing their five-man attack game. And the Tampa Bay Lightning were like, okay, we'll, we'll just outscore you. And they played their hockey and just played it better. And then they played the, it was the Carolina Hurricanes, right? Or was yes. that in the Eastern Conference Final? No, it was the, it was the, second I, round. It was the Islanders the, in the Conference Final, so it would have right. been the Hurricanes, so they, yeah. Right, so they played the Hurricanes. And the Hurricanes play the shutdown, punt and hunt hockey, right? And... The Lightning, again, just molded to the Carolina Hurricanes, the, molded to their style of play, and just did it better. And then the Islanders, we all know, play shutdown hockey. And Tampa Bay was like, okay, we'll win game seven, one nothing, with a shorthanded goal being our own. Like, we will out-Islanders you. And then the, they faced the Montreal Canadiens, and the Canadiens came and sort of tried to rough it up and do their, you know, between the whistles, playoff hockey shenanigans. And the Lightning, like, do you remember Brendan Gallagher's face? Oh, yeah. As that series oh, went yeah. along? Like, and they were just like, oh, yeah, no, we're also tougher than you. Like, we're, we're more dynamic offensively than Florida, and we're tougher than you. And all of a sudden, we're seeing a different thing. All of a sudden, we're seeing a Tampa Bay Lightning that, a Tampa Bay Lightning team, a version of this team that, just so, sucks the oxygen out of games. And they play uh, a style that sort of neuters faster teams, converts the game into more of a half-court game, as it were, right? Uh, grinds people down. They rely on their advantage on the power play and on the penalty kill. Um, and they lean heavily on the fact that they've got, you know, these bigger defensemen um, capable uh, of sort of winning your more classic playoff-style 3-1, 2-3 type of game. And or two one, and it's been an inter- It's been interesting to watch this evolution because this Tampa Bay Lightning team went from you know this dynamic offensive powerhouse, and they still can you know throttle you if you're not good enough defensively, or if your goaltender has an off night. Like don't get me wrong, they're they're still capable of putting up five or six, and they're not playing super conservative hockey. They're still leaning on skill type problem solving. It's just that the way they're winning is to no longer outskill you the way they did when they won their first cup or mimic your style the way they did when they won their second cup. It's now that we kind of know what we're getting from Tampa Bay and it's a different level of solidity and, and, and it's a phenomenal evolution to mark, you know, from, from a team that if they're able to win a third cup, oh my, my goodness. goodness, for the first time since the 80 to 84 New York Islanders. I mean, that would really cement this as the most successful team of the cap era. And, you know, that would be fitting. That would be fitting. They probably have deserved that title for much of the last 15 years, but this would really make it inarguable. And certainly it looks like they're going to get a chance to be in the final four at this juncture, even though, you know, I, I think this is another series like not to n- dead cat bounce for the Florida Panthers. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's perhaps that's a little feline, but um, you know, I, I don't think this series is over, particularly because of how Tampa Bay's edge has been built, um, you know, on fine margins and really an edge in net that, that I don't know as much as I prefer Vasilevsky to Bobrovsky. Like, I don't know that that holds up necessarily 
um, you know, without without the Panthers sneaking one in at least, or at least making this a little bit more interesting than it has been to this point. If the Tampa Bay Lightning wrap it up tonight, though, in the sweep, I'm going to be absolutely terrified if I'm either the Carolina Hurricanes or the New York Rangers playing them in the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, like, you have to win fast. You that, have to win yeah. fast if you're Carolina. That like, team with time to rest. And I also think the other thing is, you know, one get of, healthy. Exactly. Yeah. One of the reasons I picked them in... Uh, against Toronto was kind of a purely like psychobabble, like nonsense narrative reason, which is that team with the Not chance. Y- y- but they you know believed. I mean. Yeah. They, like, believe, they never believed they weren't going to win. And I don't think the Toronto Maple Leafs ever did believe they were, even though for me, they were the, the more skilled team. And I also just think that team and Cooper talked about it. Like they were very cognizant of the fact that they have a chance to make history by winning three straight. And I just, it, I found it really hard to believe they were going to, with that chance on the line, that they were going to bow out in the first round. Now, it was such a narrow thing against Toronto. It was so, so close that, that, you know, obviously I picked Florida in this series. But then I do think you just get back to that idea of belief and that motivation. If you're all of a sudden in the conference finals, like, then you can start to taste it, right? Like, you're so close to getting that chance to go to three straight. And I think that just that belief and that motivation, it, it, it kicks in again, or it will kick in again for Tampa Bay if they get there. And they are going to be so, so formidable uh, if they do quickly close out this series against the Florida Panthers. Just you go ahead. As just a fan of hockey with like watching with no, you know, uh, skin in the game for whoever wins and and certainly no money on the line because I don't bet on the sport. But at this point, at this point, if you're not hoping to see a Colorado um, Tampa Tampa Bay final, I mean, that would be, that would be phenomenal. That would just be so fun. And and at this point, that's you know, just my objective not not rooting interest, but objectively, what do I want to watch? Like I'd far I'd far prefer to watch that or or McDavid versus the, the entire Tampa Bay Lightning team yes. uh, than than something like Calgary Carolina, right? Which, which you know, Calgary Carolina. I mean that that's been my final pick. I don't know that I've publicized that, but at the Athletic, every round we have to submit our finals pick. That's been my final pick. Uh, since before the season began, so I've seen no reason to deviate from it. But that would be, you know, a, a very much a grinding style of hockey. Like those are two well-built, imposing teams. That's that's the bet on defense, right? But the Tampa Bay Lightning, Colorado Avs final, like that, that to me would just be, you know, I, I wouldn't miss a second. Like I, there's nothing that could be going on that I wouldn't reschedule in order to make sure that I was watching those games. That would just be so well, much fun. Tampa, Colorado would be great. I will say just kind of my, when I don't have a rooting interest, my default kind of rooting interest is if, you know, not necessarily to see a dynasty, but to see teams and players have a chance at history and kind of historical, yeah, you root for greatness. Yeah, historical greatness. And for sure. Tampa has a chance to do that. And I will also say Connor McDavid has it's a like chance how you to do always that. want to see a perfect game. When yeah, you go to a exactly. Baseball park. Right. So just, yeah. I think that dichotomy or that kind of narrative between the individual greatness of Connor McDavid and the team greatness of Tampa Bay, look, we're a long, long, long way from anything like that. But if we're just oh, yeah. kind of brainstorming ultimate series, uh, that would be pretty hard to resist yeah. as well. Despite, despite the tenor of the conversation in northern Alberta today, um, <laughs> you can't yeah. win the Stanley Cup in 10 games. They have not actually advanced uh, to the conference finals <laughs> just yet. Uh, all right. It's uh, it's Panthers lightning with the lightning with a chance to win tonight. Also the Colorado Avalanche and the St. Louis blues enjoy the games tonight hope you had a great long weekend we will be back tomorrow to break it all down on canucks hour the people show with Pick nazar and randy jan is up next you've got it on the home of the canucks sportsnet 650